I'm Vivian Fisher, and I manage the department here, this African-American department. And welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Glad to have you here this evening. It is my pleasure to introduce this evening our guest speaker, Dr. T.L. Osborne, a local college and online professor, lecturer, author, mentor, and hip-hop enthusiast. She will be conducting a brief lecture and book signing for the Hip Hop Lectures, Volumes 1 and 2. The lecture will provide a brief explanation about some of the contradictions in history that have impacted the current negativity and positivity in hip hop culture as a whole, including rap artists, lyrics, elements of hip hop culture, and current aspects of society, especially as it relates to topics such as protests, sexism, riots, politics, and police. Attendees are encouraged to ask questions, share thoughts, and participate in the brief discussion, as well as contact or add the author to your social media platforms using the handles listed below. And each one of you have a handout here. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Dr. T.L. Osborne to the podium. Hello, how's everybody today? That's good. That's good. Thank you all for coming out uh, to support uh, the hip hop uh, lecture event at the library today. Uh, before starting, I just want to uh, sort of preface uh, what encouraged me uh, to write these uh, books in particular. Um, I've been teaching as a college professor since 2006. And uh, the course that I teach is a course called the History of Hip Hop at uh, CCBC at all of their campuses. And basically, when I started teaching the course, I realized that a lot of students have different levels of knowledge of hip hop. Uh, some don't know hip hop in terms of its history. They only know what they see on TV or what they hear on the radio. Uh, other people are more advanced in terms of their knowledge of hip hop history. And so what I wanted to do was bridge the gap. So uh, one of the things that I would do is teach the course from basic levels of history, specifically not starting in New York City in the 70s, but before that period of time, and go all the way back to African drum and dancing. Uh, most people, in terms of children, when they're born, the first sign that they hear is their mom's heartbeat. And so beats, in and of itself, is rhythmic. So uh, one of the things that I do is just transition the course from uh, African American history, drumming and dancing, all the way up uh, using, talking about the Harlem Renaissance, the minstrel shows, if you're not familiar with that, blackface performances in terms of uh, comedy, slavery, and spirituals, which were songs that had coded messages, as well as the civil rights movement and hip hop. Uh, my book, however, was planned to be written over the course of time, but teaching makes it difficult to write a book while you're actively teaching. Uh, but just this past summer, about a year ago, one of my students said, if you do not write this book, I will steal the information from you because he was so excited. And most students that come, regardless of their age, um, I've taught from students that are 17 all the way up to about 72. So they all get excited when they realize that, wow, I'm more connected to hip hop culture than I realize. So uh, this was sort of what prompted my efforts to release the book um, in terms of that. And I also wanted it to be um, able to be purchased by individuals that were not able to take the college course, but love to learn about hip hop and its history. So that's just a little bit about me before I go into the book. Um, at, I'm assuming at typical uh, book signings, people assume that you read the book, but uh, mine's is a little bit different. I'm very interactive and I like to sort of meet new people and hear what you all 
uh, are thinking. So uh, typically what I do at my book signings is if you notice on the second page outside of the social media, it lists the actual chapters of my book from volume one to volume two. And so what I often like to do is give you all a chance to read through and pick three chapters from each one of those and ask me uh, questions that may intrigue you. And that way you can kind of get a taste of the book, kind of see if it's something you're interested uh, in and also just how the book necessarily flows. So I will give you our opportunity to um, just look through that information. And anybody that wants, you can just, we'll start with volume one. If anything piques your interest in terms of the title, we can move from there. And I'll just tell you about it. And then at the end, we'll take general uh, questions and answers. So anything from volume one? Anybody see a chapter or a title that may be intriguing or interesting? Yes, ma'am. Okay, go ahead. Yes, sir. Okay, so, uh, and I'll, you can do the next one. Okay, chapter four um, focuses on the minstrel show era, which is blackface performances. And uh, the term sort of sellout is a term that's used as a colloquialism, especially in hip hop, to mean basically you are no longer authentic or you sold yourself for money purposes. So if you're not familiar with uh, minstrel show performances, it's the first American art form of entertainment. And it was pretty much foundational for comedy. However, it was not only humorous to most audiences, but it was also offensive. Uh, painting your face black and also uh, mocking and doing stereotypical comedy about African Americans, as well as Jewish people and Irish people became very big during this particular time. So chapter four teaches about the impact of blackface performances as entertainment. In other words, I often explain to people, if you ever watch a comedy show or comedy sketch or you like to laugh, it's kind of hard to laugh laugh at something and then also find it offensive. So um, if anybody in here watches comedy, most comedians sometimes tread that line between racial and stereotypical sort of sayings. But during this particular era, it was very difficult for people to distinguish, hey, this is funny, but this is also disrespectful and promoting stereotypes of specific people. So this is the era where on television you would see images of black people in watermelon, loving chicken. You would also, the big noses, the big lips, the sambo, and cartoons were a big advocate for these shows as well. And so when you look at it, not only were adults perpetuating stereotypes, but cartoons are often watched by children. So if children are watching cartoons, they're also digesting this information and believing what they see as well. So in terms of hip hop culture, this is very important because most people would say, how does something that happened way back when in the 1800s have to do with hip hop today? Well, most people believe that individuals who participate in hip hop culture today, not the roots of it, have sold out in terms of doing whatever they can to get money. So when you see somebody on a TV or a video and they appear to be acting like a buffoon or they be, appear to be all about money, this matches that same imagery in the minstrel show era. So this becomes very important when talking about selling out as well as being authentic. So that's what the transition of that particular chapter goes through. It tells you the history. It tells you also about how minstrel shows were not just performed at venues, 
but they also made a lot of money in terms of bar actions as well. And so this becomes important and also controversial because black people f performed in blackface. Um, this is important as well because most people say, why would you perform in blackface knowing that it's stereotypical? But the whole notion is if my gift was to be an actress, this is the way that I had to go to become an actress in a time. The other notion is, well, if you did the blackface, don't you feel like you are insulting your culture? Not if I'm making a dollar. Also, slaves that were talented would perform. If this is a way to get off the plantation, I might participate in this action as well. So that is pretty much, sir, what that uh, chapter talks about and sort of ties in. And the question becomes, are hip-hop artists modern-day minstrel show characters, or are they really living authentic lives? Because a lot of rappers rap about a life that they have never lived all for the sake of the dollar. Okay. Yes, ma'am, you had your uh, hand raised for another. Okay. Chapter seven, the civil rights movement fantasy uh, versus reality. Uh, for those that are just coming in, thank you again for uh, attending the uh, hip hop lectures. Just to let you know, we're just going through on the second page, uh, picking out chapters to possibly discuss, even though you don't necessarily have the book in front of you. So chapter seven is one of uh, my sort of favorite uh, chapters because this is the, in essence, what I wrote the book for, which was to bridge the gap between uh, generations, specifically those belonging to the civil rights generation and the hip hop generation. Um, the title fantasy versus reality is sort of this notion where a lot of times in history, we are taught sort of this story about how certain heroes in uh, American history are great, but also flawless. And so in hip hop culture, being real and being authentic in its history and its foundation was crucial. So a lot of times when we look at legends like, for instance, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, or Rosa Parks, these are three individuals that are mentioned in the book, we know that they've made great changes and strides, but we also know that they have controversy associated with them. Unfortunately, a lot of times the controversy does not get brought up, just the, po the positive side. And in hip-hop culture, I believe that you shouldn't just fantasize about a hero. You should also tell the realistic side about them as well. So, for instance... Uh, most people in specifically know about Malcolm X in terms of his negativity and a lot of times have been associated with hatred of black people. But a lot of times they don't know his history and his experience of what prompted that. And so uh, in the book, it talks about his upbringing and how his father was murdered and in his father being murdered by members of the KKK and uh, along the lines, his mom also losing her mind when she saw her husband's body, it immediately made him a orphan. So when he was an orphan, he tried to go to school. But unfortunately, while he was in school wanting to be a lawyer, we were still dealing with racism in a segregated school venue. So while he was in school, he was told you shouldn't be a lawyer. In fact, you should do something with your hands. You should join a trade school education. In, them tell, in the teacher telling him that and not calling on him, he became frustrated. He said, why well, go to school if the teacher's not going to teach me, if the teacher's not going to engage me and make me better. So most options that he had was to either stay in school and deal with that or drop out. He decided to drop out. Well, when you drop out of school, there's not too many options. You hit the streets. So he became sort of known as a street uh, runner, a street hustler. And his life sort of unfolded in a parallel manner where he ended up in prison. 
Now, I say all of this in the chapter to sort of make a line of progress in terms of today. A lot of individuals, especially youth in school, do not feel connected. And so a lot of times, or encouraged, so a lot of times their options they feel are limited. So I make that parallel, and I talk about how in social media, and uh, during this particular time, Martin Luther King was known as the dreamer and Malcolm X was the nightmare, but they both were essential to the culture. In other words, you need somebody to promote a dream, but you also need somebody to show the alternative when that dream is not met. And I see a gentleman in the back giving me the amen head nod. So this is, you know, the chapter flushes out. It also talks about Miss Rosa Parks respectfully. And a lot of times when students read or people in general read this particular chapter, I talk about how Rosa Parks was not the first to do the bus boycotts. And this is very important to know in school. <laughs> I am getting more nods. Okay, so, and this is important because a lot of times in school, you're taught the fantasy. You're not taught the reality. And so there were other women, one in particular, Claudette Colvin. She was 16 and she was pregnant. She didn't fit the image. So now during this uh, particular chapter, I talk about how image is important and image plays a role. All three women that I named, there were, of course, others, but I picked three specific ones. Mary Louise Smith, Claudette uh, Colvin, and I talk about and Irene Morgan. And I talk about how all three of these women were dark-skinned. They did not have... Um, for the most part, social economic status, and they did not fit the image necessarily that met the approval. One of the young women, father was an alcoholic. She prided herself on being responsible and respectful, but unfortunately, because her father was an alcoholic, the headline would have read, daughter of an alcoholic. Apple don't fall too far from the tree. She probably was on the bus drunk and wilding out. So that's why she got arrested. So uh, this becomes very important when teaching history and trying to deal with those conflictions in terms of fantasy and reality. And so ultimately what this chapter does is go through how Martin Luther King's birth name was not Martin Luther King. It was actually Michael King, how he changed it. That falls into image as well. So a lot of this particular chapter goes through what you were might have taught in school versus what things really were. And it's not a bad thing. But once again, in hip hop, it's all about initially, I can't speak for the culture now in the rap, but initially it was all about being authentic and real. And the best way to connect with me is to tell me your whole story, not half your story. And so to finish up in hip hop culture, there's a more admiration for Malcolm than it is Martin. But in the book, it tries to merge the two and say, don't disrespect Martin Luther King because he was passive. It takes a lot to turn the other cheek and be spit on and go through marches. But also don't just take Malcolm's side of by any means necessary. I ask most people, what my students especially, what comes before and after that line? I don't know, but by any means necessary, Dr. T, it's getting done. Well, what does that mean? What did he mean when he say that, said that in particular? So uh, that's what that particular uh, chapter is about, is making things more holistic in terms of both of their stories, everybody involved. Yes, sir, you have from volume one. Okay. But I got you, you right. Okay, please don't for, forget. Anybody else want to pick a chapter from volume one? Oh, oh okay. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, so uh, that's another uh, one of my favorite uh, chapters. This uh, particular chapter focuses on um, everybody in here pretty much knows uh, the impact of slavery in American uh, culture and what it basically, uh, how it affected, <clears throat> excuse me, African-American people. Um, what's an important part of the struggle and sort of the survival were these songs called spirituals. And uh, spirituals are extremely uh, important, not just for motivation and encouragement. Um, I often uh, share with people that if you listen to music, most people will listen to music all day long. Sometimes they'll play the same songs or they'll switch the songs up based on their temperament. And so this becomes important as well. So if you ever notice when it's time to clean the house, you'll put music on. You might even put on multiple CDs and play it. But once the music stop, a lot of times you stop and go, okay, that's it for the day. If you're sort of cleaning up. So music has an, a powerful ability to motivate and inspire. And so in this chapter, I focus on specific people that were catalysts during slavery. And so um, there's several other people that could have been included, but I try to include the basic people that people may have heard of or may have seen pictures of. So the three in particular are Willie Lynch, Harriet Tubman, and Mr. Nat Turner. And the timing of Nat Turner, and I'll go back to that in a few minutes, is, uh, of course, interesting given that movies are coming out now that are sort of circulating and sort of reliving some of this history. Uh, Willie Lynch in the book is actually an interesting uh, person that's mentioned because a lot of people feel that Willie Lynch and historically may or may not have been real. There have been information that has proven he's not real. Now, whether you name this individual and the reason why is he's often associated with developing the methods for controlling slavery. Now, whether he was, bless you, whether he was real or not real or this individual person, we clearly know historically that these methods were used. Uh, Willie Lynch was is sort of an urban legend. So I wanted to include him in the reading uh, for individuals to sort of understand the strategy in slavery. Stra uh, slavery is unfortunate, but it also, when you look at it outside of the tragedy of it, it's very brilliant in terms of how you control people. Oftentimes on a plantation, individuals would be physically free, but they would still walk around and not run away. So this shows you how slavery is not just physical bondage, it's also mental and emotional. Spirituals were able to release individuals from that. In other words, I'm not physically free, but in my mind in a song, I can be free. And so a lot of times everybody doesn't have the same energy. Some people wanted to run away. And so spirituals included different sort of dynamics. So Willie Lynch started this method and he basically said if you do this method correctly, individuals will be slaves for 300 plus years. And so some of the things he decided to do was divide the family, have men not be with their wives, have them make babies on different plantations with different women and not take care of those children. Another method he said was hate is stronger than love. If you breed a lot of contempt and, and jealousy among people, they will spend so much time hating on one another that they won't focus on escape. So the other thing he said is divide them by color. This is where you get the sort of in-house and field. Light-skinned people got to stay in the house. 
fields got to stay, uh, dark skinned people got to stay in the field. And so they are not going to work together because they are looking at each other saying, oh, you have it better in the house. You have it worse in the field. But the problem is the house was no better than the field when you learn historically what people in the house had to deal with. And so in the reading, it breaks down this dynamic and it talks about how the circle of unity, which was the fiber of African American culture in Africa, became a circle of dysfunction and how you see that play out. So whether you believe Willie Lynch existed and started the lynching methods and all of these strategies, something along the way happened to cause uh, impact on families even today in 2016. Harriet Tubman, uh, today she was officially announced as uh, being put on the $20 bill. It's so ironic that today that uh, happened. Yeah, she will be featured on the $20 bill and she's mentioned in the book for several different. I call uh, Miss Harriet Tubman passive aggressive. Anybody in here that may get qualified as passive aggressive? Um, I call her that because she did not go in guns blazing, but please do not be mistaken she was about that life if you don't know what that means that means she was not to be fooled with she was a small frame woman in short but she handled her business most people don't know this this is mentioned in the book without giving too much away she carried uh, first of all she wore a bandana she carried a knife and a shotgun now, one, a lot of people say, well, if you're going to go on a run, you need that. It wasn't just for the slave catchers. It was also for the people that she sought to free. Uh, she has a quote that's so powerful and it's mentioned in the book. She said, I freed thousands of slaves and would have freed thousands more had they known they were slaves. And so that quote is monumental because what she's basically saying is, and with the image, if you ever watch old slave film or see footage, is a bunch of people walking around physically free but not imagining that you can actually be free and actually not be on a plantation. There's life outside of it. And so when she would arrive to free people, which tragic is people would look at her and say, no, I'm not ready to go. Mm -mm, it's too scary. And then when she would run away with people, people would get in the middle of the trip and go, uh, I think I want to go back. It was a little, I'm, I'm nervous about what I'm doing. So she had to have the knife and the shotgun to basically say either you keep it moving or you lie where you stand. So that's sort of, you know, her perception on sort of the take of freedom. And so, uh, this is why I speak, uh, to her. It's other information in the book about her, uh, sort of journey. I also sort of call her the first original gangster. Um, and uh, in particular, the reason why is because just her demeanor in general. And when you look at sort of gangster culture, she was literally premier in what she was trying to do and achieve and accomplish was also unique with her being sort of a leader. Her name was Black Moses. And so one of the interesting things is the biblical connection, which is the spirituals that were mentioned uh, previously. And so there were a lot of songs that were written about her specifically or anyone that tried to help people escape to freedom. So in the book, it's actually a song written called Moses Moses. And I include that in there for you to see the lyrics and realize that this was was called a coded song. Most of the time, the song was sung in a depressed manner where slave catchers and slave masters had no idea that by the end of the evening, slaves were escaping. They sound so sad. So if you listen to songs like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, Coming for to Carry Me Home, 
nobody's running away. You sound too depressed to run. But that was sort of the code in the song. song. Swing low, sweet chariot. Chariot is a code for sort of getaway. So this is uh, what I mentioned with Harriet. And then Mr. Nat Turner, if anybody's familiar with uh, him or not, Nat Turner. I call him the originator of Thug Life. Uh, Tupac Shakur sort of made that a moniker, but uh, Nat Turner believed in it. Uh, he started a rebellion, and his whole idea was not only am I going to kill the master, but I need to kill his wife and his children. Now, historically, Nat Turner's rebellion is not really taught a lot about because normally in war you spare women and children. But his line of thinking was, if I do not kill the women and children, that seed of hatred is still being produce and unfortunately women were a lot of times worse slave owners than the husbands and children hated the everybody on the plantation especially those children that were mixed with their father's DNA so I talk about the struggle and the conflictions in that turn are not supporting him and totally but also just providing the information so that you know historically that this individual rebelled but also the consequences to a rebellion and trying to sort of change and impact uh specifically African-American culture in terms of slavery. So that's what uh, that section of the chapter is about, sir. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So um, the civil rights, the rise of the post-civil rights movement, the emergence of the Black Arts Movement, and the Black Panther Party. And uh, this particular chapter chooses to fuse the Black Arts Movement with the Black Panther Party as they sort of lapped into one another uh, following the death of Malcolm X. And so the black arts movement, if you're not familiar with the shortest version of me to give that to you, is that this was a movement that fused poetry with um, politics. So prior to this, most people, when you listen to poetry, most people like poetry to talk about love, flowers, and beauty. During this era, the black arts movement, their poetry talked about violence, change, and realism. They also begin to use profanity. So when you align the timing of the black arts movement fusing profanity with poetry to speak about politics and social injustice, that's the foundation for what hip hop ends up doing. And so uh, in this chapter, it talks about Amiri Baraka, who is the founder of that movement and his impact on uh, using not just poetry, but also art to sort of speak to politics. And then I also fuse it with the Black Panther Party. And I teach about in the book or rather write about how the Black Panther Party once again also has a positive and a negative side to it. Uh, the positive side is they provided breakfast programs for their community. They tried to serve as security guards for their community against the police and police brutality, as well as the Black Panther Party um, also looking for education and making that pertinent. The downside and the negative aspects is that the Black Panther Party is also described as being the black version of the KKK because of the hatred, the rhetoric and the tone and sort of their message and the controversy of not being afraid to fight or kill cops. The other thing that was also controversial is there is a 
rumor or suggestion that the Black Panther Party used drug money to fund their movement because the government did not necessarily provide it. So these are some of the controversial aspects that were mentioned during this uh, particular time as well. And by the end of the chapter, it's also a mentioning of the poem, uh, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And this becomes very important because uh, over the course of time, what begins to happen is earlier in this particular um, historical period, a lot of people were on the fence in how to deal with social injustice. Do I go in the streets? Do I march? Do I protest? Do I try to make a change or do I just wait for someone else to do it? If I go in and protest, what is the consequence? Will I be arrested? Uh, most of the time people forget everybody that marched and protested. A lot of them had jobs. So the consequences to marching and protesting, if you get arrested, could impact your finances. So by no means was it easy for people to actually march, stand, and take a stance against injustice during this particular time. Okay, so what I'll do now is shift to uh, volume two of the um, hip-hop lectures, and same thing, uh, anybody see a chapter that sort of stands out uh, to them, and I can share, yes ma'am. Okay, chapter three, uh, judge not lest ye be judge, hip-hop's sin. Uh, so this particular uh, chapter talks about three individual sort of uh, people. One, the preacher, two, the pimp, and three, the Bible. Um, this is very important in talking about uh, hip-hop culture because hip-hop, for the most part, is a generation that is in conflict with the civil rights generation, as I mentioned before. Uh, everything that the civil rights generation has fought for, a lot of times when it comes to having a conversation about hip-hop culture and some of the imagery and the lyrics, the conversation, if you ever notice on television, radio, it often does not end with the two generations being in unity or even agreeing to see things differently. A lot of times it's this notion of you all just need to do this and this is how we did things, so you should do it as well. Prime example, uh, and during the civil rights movement, they fought to sit anywhere on the bus, specifically in the front because they were isolated to the back. Hip hop culture gets on the bus, and goes to the back. That's where the spot is. If you want to be, you know, so it's, it's not, it's, and this becomes very important in having a conversation. The civil rights generation fought for terms not to be used, such as the word nigga. Hip hop culture has said, hey, we can flip that word and make it endearing. So when we talk about the two different sort of sides, it's this notion that I can look at you and point my finger and say all that you and your generational culture is not doing. But hip hop is able to also say, well, hey, if I'm in a predicament where I don't know any better, the question becomes, why don't I? So I talk about the notion and the image of the preacher in this particular chapter, because one of the things that older generations, specifically civil rights, talks about is hip hop's degradation of women. Well, if you look historically, the civil rights movement was not just promoted or ran by men, but they a lot of times were the face of it. Sexism existed during this era. But if you aren't familiar with the history, this is where I mean by sin. You are disrespecting women. Well, where did the disrespect first start? So this becomes important as well. Well, you all don't take care and you're not fathers. I don't want you to be under the assumption that everybody in the civil rights generation took care of their families or that 
that they were faithful to their wives because a lot of times they had families outside of their families. So this becomes important as well. And this is what I mean by sin. So the second person that's important in hip hop sin is the pimp. So one of the things in culture is pimps are often looked upon as sort of negative. They disrespect women. A woman sells her body for monetary sort of value. And one of the things that's important to sort of know and pay attention to is that the pimp was actually idolized more so than the preacher. If you look at historically, the pimp had the nice clothes, had the nice cars, had the baddest women and was very intellectually smart enough where you can use words to make somebody else do work and then give you the money. And when you say, why are you putting your body out and doing that? Well, ain't that what I'm supposed to do? This is what he tells me to do. So it's okay. So the pimp becomes important because also if you trace the line of how a pimp dresses and looks, it looks just like, unfortunately, a lot of preachers who want to show their watch, their car, their jewelry and everything else. So this imagery is sort of inherent. And so the last thing that's mentioned in here is sort of the Bible. And I reference a story of Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve is important because if anybody ever knew their sin, the whole notion was Eve and that apple. Unfortunately, when you look at the story, if you look uh, deeper, whatever version that you read, it talks about how when Eve, uh, prior to this, Adam had not bothered the tree. He wasn't supposed to eat from the tree. Soon as Eve came from his rib, Eve made her way to the tree. She bit the apple and then said, Adam, huh, taste this. Adam eats the apple. And then when God runs up on him and says, hey, what's going on? He goes, she gave it to me. So the blame game starts. So one of the things that's important when you look at history and sort of that one particular story is how women become the blame for a lot. And when you look at hip hop culture, when things sort of happen in terms of women and respect for themselves, it's sort of blamed on the women as well. If any sort of issue occurs, well, why was she there? What did she have on? Uh, recently, the film um, confirmation about Anita Hill um, came out. And a lot of times, if anybody remembers that case, when she sort of called out Clarence Thomas before they even got to her issue, the question was, what did you wear? Why were you wearing V-neck shirts? What did you have on? So all of these issues are very important when you talk about hip hop culture and things being inherent. So uh, this is what it is. So in other words, don't judge me until you're ready to analyze yourself and all that you didn't do. Uh, positive. So that's what that chapter sort of uh, talks about. All right. Anybody else? Okay. Chapter seven, maintaining authenticity in hip hop. So uh, this is sort of the chapter that talks about how can artists specifically in hip hop keep it real. And so what ends up becoming an issue is I mentioned some artists in there in particular, and I uh, quote some of their lyrics. And so typically when an artist starts out uh, in hip hop, first of all, hip hop is a culture that comes from nothing into something. And so imagine never having anything and then getting access to things that you only uh, dreamed of. So uh, if anybody here can recall window shopping, which is where you just look at stuff and go, wow, that would be great if I had that, but you never buy it. So you go from window shopping to actually making purchases. Um, when money becomes involved and you're able to, uh, gain a sort of stability in your finances, 
one of the things, unfortunately, that happens with music is a lot of times the quality of the music goes down. In other words, I'm making so much money that I'm no longer relatable to the people that I grew up with. The problem is the people that you grew up rapping about are still in their situation, but you're not, no longer in yours. You live in a gated community. Your children go to a private school. You bought a house for your mother. You feel financially secure. So how can I be a person that has everything and still rap about somebody that has nothing? So authenticity becomes very important because the question is, am I okay to just recall by memory all my experiences or do you need me to be living them live? So oftentimes I ask people this question and this is what the chapter seeks to ask. Is it better for somebody to research something for you and tell you about it? Or is it better for you to see a real life example of it? Depending on who you are, that's how music works. Some people do not care if their artist is living the life that they're talking about or the struggle, long as it has a nice beat. Some people don't even listen to the lyrics. They're just like, it has a nice beat. It's fine. Well, those who are a little bit more in depth into the music, they seek their artists to be truthful. And unfortunately, in hip hop in particular, you're not able to always deviate from that. Now, culture and times are changing where individuals, for instance, like Rick Ross, if anybody's not familiar with this gentleman, he's an individual that basically took a actual drug dealer's name and used it as a rap name and has made millions of dollars off of that name. He used to actually be a correctional officer, this gentleman, but he's rapping as if he's a drug dealer. Now, normally in foundational hip hop culture, that's a sin. You never take on a life that you never live. But because time has changed and most people that listen to music now, especially hip hop, are not necessarily concerned with the background of the artist, he's been able to maneuver and finagle. And it doesn't hurt that he has nice beats with his music that'll make you dance and bob your head so uh, when it talks about maintaining authentic authenticity I just talk about the journey as you gain money how your lyrics change ultimately every artist in hip-hop I can't speak for other genres of music but I'm pretty sure it applies every artist that becomes successful and reaches the top of the mountain when they reach it the first thing that they realize is wow this is everything I always wanted but it costs so much I have so much stress. I have so much to deal with. Things aren't the same. I don't have the same people. Everything around me has sort of dissolved. So I have everything I dreamed of, but I have nothing that I actually wanted. And so when you're doing, when you're dealing with that feeling, this is why the music, if you ever listen to one particular artist, they always say, you know, I wish things were differently. Uh, Eminem had a song called The Way I Am. He spoke about how I wish I could just go to the bathroom and have somebody not ask me for my autograph. I wish I could just sit with my daughter. And so this comes out in the lyrics as well. J. Cole mentioned recently in uh, his album, he talks about how, wow, everything is not what I thought. And so this becomes part of the whole process of how can I be authentic, even though my life and everything about me is changing. All right. Somebody else from uh, volume two. Okay. Chapter six, self-made or man-made the ladies of rap, but only room for one queen. Uh, this particular chapter um, is important as well, because a lot of times in hip hop, very rarely are there females that are promoted. This particular uh, part of the book talks about the women in hip hop and how 
if you know historically, it gives you a list of women and it says, are the women in hip hop self-made? Self-made means did they pull themselves up by the bootstrap into the hip hop culture and dominate? Were they man-made? Man-made means did they get into hip hop only by way of a man? And so this raises issue about sexism. The list of females that I've listed are females that started in hip hop all the way up to now. Every woman has came by way of a man. In other words, they did not enter the hip hop industry, which is a male dominated industry without having been led by a man. So in other words, when you look at artists such as I'll do a current one, Nicki Minaj, Nicki Minaj has been able to carve her own lane. However, when you look at it, she came by way of Lil Wayne. A lot of times, not only do these women rely on men to get them into the industry, they rely on men to tell them how to navigate the industry. And so a lot of times they will adopt their male moniker. So for a while, if you ever know Nicki Minaj history, she used to call herself the female Wheezy. Not only did she take on his instruction, but she also said, I want to be the male version of him, not my own version. So when you look at hip hop and you see this transition, it's no wonder that a lot of females do not stay long in this industry for 20 and 30 years like their male counterparts, because a lot of times the males end up in jail or did. Little Kim's career died soon as Biggie died. She's still trying to evoke it. And I, you know, I'm a fan of her, her music and what she did for hip hop in terms of flipping the script for women, but she has not been able to climb back up to that ladder because who she attached to is no longer here. So, uh, this chapter talks about that. It asks questions if it's a combination of both and it just delves through just women and how they try to navigate. Do I have to sell sex to be impactful? And so when you look at the top selling females, a lot of times they're selling sex. They can't, they might want to rap about something positive, but they will not last long if they do. Uh, Nicki Minaj had a song when she first came out before she started doing the whole, ah, 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 all of that. <laughs> she basically, <clears throat> basically talked about how when she wanted to switch up and be a female Lauren Hill, she did not sell. And so her fans also did not support her when she would try to make more conscious music. So she chose to go in that direction and occasionally she'll sprinkle in some positive songs uh, throughout it. But for the most part, that was the decision that she made. And it just goes through previous females that came before her and whether any more will come out and be able to be successful. So that's that. And one more chapter from volume two. Okay, chapter one, hip hop culture, the evolution. Um, typically, if you have ever read any hip hop history books, normally they name four elements of hip hop, DJing, MCing, graffiti, and breakdancing. Uh, occasionally you'll see beatboxing and beatboxing. If anybody doesn't know, is just making music with your mouth. That's my version of it. I'm not very great at it, but that I just wanted to give y'all something, make sure y'all still up. Okay. So that's uh, it in this particular chapter through my study and research. And so this is where it's groundbreaking research. And I'm not just selling you the book, but I'm being honest. Um, I've evolved the list from four or five to 13. The other elements that I think that are missing that have not been included in any research is history in terms of that. Now you'll see, and it'll be knowledge in there occasionally. So I've added to that list, put history, slang. Slang is very important. Slang is not just, you know, uh, something in terms of 
what young people are saying in Baltimore, but Chicago, there are different sort of words that are used. Uh, Snoop back in the day would say for shizzle my nizzle. He made a whole pig Latin version out of language. So it's very important that you know slang because you might think something is a compliment and it's very offensive. Anybody know, for example, butterface? I'll just... Right. I see the eyebrows. What is a butterface? Okay. So it sounds nice. Hey, baby, you're a butterface, but it means everything's cute, but your face. So this is very important. It's, you know, important in terms of, and this is a light version of, of this, but it's very important as, as well that you know certain monikers and sort of language. So that's one of them. The other thing that I mentioned on there is sampling. Sampling is very important. Most people call sampling maybe stealing. So it's sampling slash, slash stealing. Anybody familiar with Robin Thicke and Marvin Gaye's music? That's a recent sort of notion. Sampling has been going on forever. There's an old African proverb that says there is no original song except for the first one, which means everything after that is a duplicate. Now, in the 90s, uh, if anybody's familiar, Sean P. Diddy Combs was able to sample without penalty, meaning nobody... Most older people didn't listen to rap music, so they didn't even know their music was being sampled. So imagine, I always paint a picture, imagine someone's grandmother hearing their grandchild listen to rap, saying, oh my gosh, all that noise, that's so, what is that, what is that? And the old uh, older person say to them, wait a minute, that beat sounds familiar. I know that song, that's so-and-so. Grandma, you don't know that song, you old, you don't know that song. But grandma really does know the song. Grandma may have even sung the song back in the day. So when you find out that your music is being used, a lot of older people from the older generation said it wouldn't be bad that someone is using it, but wait a minute, they're using it and it's negative, it's derogatory. So you're not gonna flip my music and make it disrespectful. So I talk about sampling. I also talk about the other four and five elements I mentioned. I add collaboration to that. Anybody collabos or remixes? Remixes are very important to music. When a rap artist works with a pop artist, that allows their career to blossom as well as bring new audiences. So collaborations are very important to hip hop, not just within the culture, also outside of it. Another one that I add uh, in there as well is hustling. Hustling has been going on legally and illegally forever. So one of the things that people have done, if you look at hip hop history, is people were willing to sell tapes out of their car. Master P built his empire selling tapes out of his trunk. So that are, those are your entrepreneurs that have evolved over time as well. People that sell t-shirts, people that do whatever they can to promote their talent and their passion. So you have to acknowledge that. Unfortunately, you also have to acknowledge the illegal side. A lot of times, hip hop labels or rappers were funded by drug dealers or individuals that did illegal activity. So I have to acknowledge uh, both of those aspects as well. So those are some of the things that expanded and talks about hip hop's uh, evolution over time as well. All right. So I wanted to thank you all for uh, participating and uh, calling out some of the chapters. And I will open up uh, this particular part of the lecture for questions. Um, I have one good question. Yes, ma'am. And it's called spoken word. I figured 
like even back in the day, like when I seen them old movies and they were coming out, even before that when they did the spirituals. And one thing I recognized throughout that whole thing, no matter what, even if people were talking amongst themselves in a circle and they talking about a certain story and they passed along, do you think in any way, because I, I feel as though music is music is music is music, do you think spoken word on its own is a part of that? Absolutely. Spoken word on its own is is a part of that. Um, I would equate, and I'm probably, I don't want to get in trouble for saying necessarily that it's the same as poetry because it depends on sort of, but to me, as you mentioned, if anytime I'm speaking to you, whether it rhymes or does not rhyme and a method that's sort of producing a message in terms of my emotion, that's a crucial part of the history. And so this is not just universal to African-Americans. This is universal, period. The reason that it's highlighted, I believe, in African-American culture a lot of times is because it's so, uh, African-Americans are of an oral tradition. Um, in the book, it talks about um, how there was this notion when Africans arrived to America as slaves, they couldn't read. That wasn't necessarily true. Just because I prefer to tell you a story than read or write you one doesn't mean I don't know how to read and write. So you're absolutely correct. As long as I can articulate in some manner, you can look at hieroglyphics and say that, you know, that that is the first graffiti, which it is. So, you know, absolutely your your question and your statement in terms of spoken word relevancy is essential to hip hop. Yes, sir. I wanted to ask. um you may mention about about hip hop, because um, I've been following hip hop for quite some time. Um, you may mention about Adam and Eve. Um, I want to know um, how, like for example, I wanted to actually write a book on actually hip hop and old school music. How do how does a person like me go about doing that? Um, I would say break it down into parts um, for the longest time, uh, and I still do. I teach from sort of uh, technology is great, but I still love pen and paper. Um, for the longest time, I taught from pieces of paper that I wrote, and eventually my book was nothing more than separate pieces of paper of me lecturing. So, I, you know, the best thing I can honestly tell you is to literally sit and organize, and even if you write a paragraph a day, sir, you could, it before you know it, it will become one chapter. I could never have imagined writing a book that lengthy, but I also didn't imagine writing, you know, when I was in school, my dissertation. How is one page going to turn into 200? So, you know, taking it bit by bit and step by step. The other thing I would say, too, is that there are programs now, like uh, I believe Dragon, you can actually talk to a recorder and it'll type it for you. So, you know, technology, and I believe you can uh, maybe get it from the library and use the source, but any anytime you can just transcribe your information, that is great. You may decide that maybe I just want to do a video book where you just film yourself chapter one and talking. Whatever you do, put your, your mark on it, because one of the things I noticed is there are a lot of hip-hop books that are out, but it's not a lot of hip-hop books that maybe start before New York or add different elements to it. So I wanted to just craft something that would be unique and, you know, not something that sort of recycled. So you, you can do it just bit by bit. Um, in, in your book, did you explore the connection between Jamaican music 
and hip hop because um Cool Herc, which which is one of the pioneers of hip hop, came from Jamaica. Are you from the island? Yes, I am. Which island are Jamaica? Jamaica. Okay, so way to rap rap Cool Herc. Absolutely, I do talk about Cool Herc. Glad that you asked uh, that question. He's in the evolution uh, part of the book. And I talk about not only um, uh, Cool Herc's impact, but also how he developed what's known as the bass sound. If anybody's familiar with the bass, and I'm just going to give you an example again, that's that sound where the speakers are so loud, it gets in your chest, and you feel like you're having a heart attack. So it's like... <laughs> And it just shakes you. So he introduced that uh, to the culture. He also introduced toasting. Toasting was the prelude to rapping. But when he did toasting, it was just somebody coming on the mic. He's DJing. He's like, how's everybody this evening? And people would go, good. And the person would just talk to you. They weren't rhyming yet. So he introduced that element as well. He also introduced what's known as breakbeats. Uh, breakbeats, if you notice from that word, break dancers love break beats because that's what they can dance the most on the break beat is the part of the music where the instrumental is heavy the best way to describe it is if you sing a song you have a hook and that's the part if you ever sing a song you get the loudest on that you might not know the other words to the song you'll be like duh, duh, duh. but then when the hook comes on that's when you get excited so for he introduces this break beat and he realizes hey if everybody likes to dance on the break beat why not just keep looping that over and over? And I can keep people dancing for literally minutes at a time. If you ever listen to a breakbeat, it is only about 30 to maybe 50 seconds of music. But when you loop it, it keeps going. And it's sort of like keeping you in a merry-go-round. So if you ever notice you're out dancing, you can dance. And then all of a sudden, the DJ never plays a whole song because he's only playing the parts you like. So when you get ready to catch your breath and go, all right, I'm going to go get something to drink, he plays another song and you go, wait a minute, I'm not done yet. So this is, you know, this is really uh, what Cool Herc sort of designed and added to. Thank you very much. Shout out to Jamaica. I would go boop, boop, boop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, anybody else? Any other questions? Hi. My question is, I'm an educator, and I spoke earlier, and I'm always working to try to get my students to understand the history of the hip-hop. And I find that often today, they're just caught up with the end product. They don't understand the history, whether it's about the hip-hop, whether it's about the fashion, the sports. What can we do to get them to make those connections with history and appreciate history? I don't think they appreciate the history behind anything um, these days. Absolutely. The best thing that I would do is start from today and go backwards. A lot of times and be open to various methods of teaching. Um, I can honestly say when I, when students sign up for my class, they go, well, I thought I was going to dance in here. And I say, you can dance because we have presentations. So, you know, I tell them, if you came to dance, you can dance. And every now and then I'll do a little move and we can battle together and break dance. It's, you know, I want you to be open to, even though I have a syllabus or something's highlighted, it doesn't mean I have to stay there. So I would start from where they are. So if young people, you notice a particular student is into fashion. I would say, well, why do you like that fashion? And then help him or her trace the fashion 
backwards. A lot of times when they do that, they'll learn about flapper girls in the Harlem Renaissance and say, wait a minute, they had pixie cuts too. So they'll begin to make their sort of own connections. I'll also, if somebody's into lyrics, I'll say, well, what's your favorite rapper in the lyrics? And I'll have them maybe rap it or say it. A lot of times rappers recycle. They're very educated. So it's a rapper name, name, uh, now named Shadena. And he has this great line that, you know, I love and a lot of people, he has this line of, well done better than well said well that's a Benjamin Franklin quote but if you didn't know you'd go oh well he's the originator of that so you know when Beyonce sung at last for the President Obama everybody was like oh Miss Beyonce that's her song well Etta James was like excuse me and what's funny is Etta James, that's her song, but it originally was an orchestra song. So it really wasn't hers. She just put the stank on it to make it hers. So, you know, so, you know, when teaching is very important. And I would always say a lot of times starting can be kind of boring to some people. Oh, we got to learn about, we're going to learn about Harriet Tubman. Well, did you know Harriet was kind of gangster? She wasn't just, you know, this woman that you see a picture and go, she's frail. You might respect her from a distance, but look at and make a connection with certain aspects today. So I would say, you know, whatever works, but a lot of times starting where someone is and going backwards can be helpful. Okay. Hi. How so, you doing? I'm good. There's a lot of uh, pedigrees of hip-hop out there, right? It is. So I was just thinking... Um, from your, I was curious to know from uh, chapter eight, the rise of post-civil rights movements um, and the emergence of the Black Arts Movement and the Black Panther Party, how do you think um, the last poets are kind of critical to the development of hip-hop and rap? Because that is political art. Absolutely. I think the last poets are foundational. Um, you know, Gil Scott Heron, everybody that, and that's important to sort of pay attention. Everybody, the whole notion of the book and the premise is hip hop is very unique. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, but nothing comes without being recycled and borrowed. And so those last poets are essential. Their content and their, their ability to connect politics once again with poetry and also to speak on it in such an eloquent way made way for individuals like KRS-One. And so hip-hop culture in general, when people look at it, hip-hop is only about 40-something years old. So imagine any 40-year-old. In other words, I'm into politics, but I'm not so in it where I believe it works. So a lot of times when you meet these 40-year-olds, and this is why when hip-hop started, you could have someone speak about politics, but then you could have a Will Smith add comedy to it. And then you could have someone else uh, like Public Enemy speak on it on another level. So the last poets gave way and also a lot of those individuals to be who you are and be in your lane, but put it together. The problem now is it's limited and it's one-sided. The, the information is uh, a lot of times you'll get a line spoken in a rap about changing something or if a whole song is about the change nobody stays with it long enough to actually see it through so the question you know during that time becomes am I just rapping or am I just speaking poetry or do I also act on it a lot of entertainers and this goes all the way even with the soul era a lot of entertainers do not want to enter into a realm of politics because it will cost them money so I'm gonna speak for y'all but I'm not really going to speak for y'all so it becomes 
becomes very important. And we have to remember this is, these are these individuals jobs. I would love to quit my job and, you know, work on things that could change the world, but everybody doesn't necessarily have the finances to do that. And that's the cost with, you know, and when you're in entertainment, a lot of times you're weighing that because you're like, I want to speak on something, but if I speak too much, it will cost me. And so, you know, the conflictions with that is, is very powerful. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Um, so I think it's really important that this is a book, that it's been written as a book, um, especially on this uh, sort of a topic to have, you know, documentation and reference to it. And at the same time, I'm wondering if you know of any or want to recommend any other media like films, either documentaries or fiction that you think add to the picture that you're giving. Um, I could give, in the back of the book, it actually um, is um, a section that off offers other sources. I do reference um, some. In terms of media, the great thing about hip-hop is because it's evolved, you can always uh, find something. Um uh, Michael Eric Dyson was a book that I referred heavily um, to um, prior to writing this book in particular. Um, there is several hip-hop pedagogies that she mentioned. I believe the uh, author's name are Aldridge Franklin, and I forgot the third one, and it's actually called Hip-Hop uh, Pedagogy uh, Films in particular. Um, they could go anywhere from Birth of a Nation to... Um, uh, literally Harlem, I would say, um, Harlem nights, uh, just to get a feel of sort of the Harlem Renaissance and the bootlegging and blacks role in that period. Um, portrait of a pimp, which is, um, um, Weisberg Slim. Look, we got a shout out to him. It's, you know, so, um, I would say videos in the book. It also mentions videos and music you can listen to. It lists the soul era, um, as well artists. So in there, they're actually, I did do that strategically mention people and songs that you can listen to, to sort of hear and, and get into the mind frame of that particular era. And I wrote some lyrics. Like I said, Gil Scott Hearn, his, uh, the revolution will not be televised as mentioned along with others, but it's a, a, a vast list, but also in the back, you'd be able to find additional sources as well and thank you I know you've been focusing basically on hip-hop but have you ever done have you done any research to examine jazz artists and the similarities between jazz artists and hip-hop hip-hop artists um in the particular to um Chapter five of volume one, the Harlem Renaissance short lived long term impacts. I do focus on, um, jazz artists during that particular period as well as blues artists. Uh, and I talk about not only the artists, but also the patrons of that particular era, um, particularly Alayla Walker, Madam C.J. Walker's daughter, and um, how skitting and scatting sort of evolves, as well as the big band theory and the parties. Um, those were legendary at the clubs as well. And so I speak about the artists. I speak about rent parties, uh, when people would throw them at their house and have live music. Uh, one of the things that I try not to do um, explicitly is I mention artists, but I feel guilty for even the ones I mentioned because there's so many more and it's hard to put it in so a lot of times in the reading I mentioned few and hope that you research or find out more but just the basic notion of jazz's impact on music and ability to improvise improvise music is very much similar to freestyling and hip-hop as well yes and they had their own slang 
And actually, since you mentioned that, hip-hop, actually, the term comes from the Harlem Renaissance. To be hip was to be cool, down, and knowledgeable, and hop was known and associated with dances and liquor. So you put them together, you have a movement that's about being cool, down, knowledgeable, and they would say things like, that's a cool cat there. So they would call a man a cat as well, not the, you know, in a derogatory sense, but that's just the slang of that. So absolutely. And one last thing, and when you look at hip-hop, when you look at hip-hop culture in terms of graffiti, um, which is a beautiful art form. Also, there were so many jazz musicians who were artists. So there's a great connection. Absolutely. The, um, and, and graffiti is great in terms of not being vandalism. And uh, in New York at a particular time, it was considered vandalism. Individuals would get arrested or fined for doing graffiti. But if you are not someone who's had your property vandalized and it's legal, it is a beautiful art form. Also, when we go around Baltimore, I think it's amazing that someone would climb the heights and depths like Spider-Man to tag or bomb our area because you're like, how did they get up there? Why did they stay there that long? And then they had time to do extra design. So, you know, it's definitely an amazing art form. But once again, it was done to sort of not just express oneself. A lot of time it would also serve as warning or sort of information, especially in the beginning parts of hip hop. Whoever had the best flyer and graffiti design, that's where most people wanted to go to that party. So that, uh, that as well. Any other questions? Going once, twice, and my favorite word, thrice. Oh, we got one. <laughs> okay. So who would you identify as, we were, we were talking about the women in rap, right? Okay. I think um, Queen Latifah has been really awesome in terms of the way that she has transitioned uh, from a rap artist into a jazz artist into a actress, actress, talk show host. Right. You know, but you know, that's what, what a lot of people, who a lot of people think of when they think of like maybe the first female rapper. Who would you identify as that person? Who would I identify as the first? See, if I, if I identify, I have to go based on my, my generation. And so, you know, I respect all of the female rappers, but my first female that I was exposed to, and please don't judge me, um, was Little Kim. Okay. My, my older sister was in high school and it was a P. Diddy tour and it was the bad boy family and it was all of them coming together. Now, anybody, it's okay if you don't know who they are. It's just, it's too adult for a 13 year old. But for whatever reason, that lady out there let me go, which is my mom, because she had the house for free. And I was exposed to not just adult content music, but a whole arena and, you know, coincidentally it's 420. I won't go past that, but it was a lot of 420 going on when I went to the concert. So with that being said, she was sort of the first person I was exposed to. And unfortunate, not unfortunately, I did not look at her as being too sexually explicit. And anybody that if you Google little Kim, she's the most vulgar sex feel person. Now I am not that I'm not just dressing the part today. I'm very modest, but that is sort of my first exposing to female. So I respected her because she flipped the game. In other words, 
it was told that boys could do this and could say this. And so when I listened to her, I would wrap her words like I wrote it, but I also would process, hey, she's doing things that guys do. So when I grew up, I was able to say I could do the same things, play on the same field, and feel empowered. Now, everybody else is not going to get that from a Little Kim song. So, you know, it's to each his own. But for me, when I listened to her, that was my first exposure. The other person, that was my first, but who I really do respect is Miss Lauren Hill. Um, Queen Latifah as well. Lauren Hill has had a bit of a struggle, you know, given, you know, her mental state, but it's understandable because a lot of great people struggle mentally with the things that they, you know, deal with. And every time they give a piece of themselves to audiences or fan, it kind of costs them. So I'm very, um, I have a great affinity towards, um, her, Queen Latifah as well. Um, if you look at her growth and transition, it's rare. Um, I can say though, the only thing that I was a little upset about is I don't know if she would ever do another rap album because it was sort of like you have to step into that lane and move. And a lot of times you can't, if she were to come back, it's like, what would she be able to give because she's, you know, evolved. I love that she's evolved, but her absence is missed in terms of females in hip hop that present a diverse image. So that would be my response to, to that. Um, in terms of future plans, my future plan is to, uh, take this content and to continue to, um, teach and lecture. I would love to see a curriculum in high school, um, um, regarding hip hop culture, just as you would do African American history or world history. Um, I'm currently working on, um, developing and sort of shopping that around and working with other other individuals to promote that um, also not just in Baltimore but across the lines I think it's very important as you mentioned as an instructor uh, for young people to understand you can be more than just a rapper you can be a fashion designer um, Mr. Russell Simmons not only started a rap label but he also developed fat farm fashion so everybody doesn't have to be a rapper to get out the hood you can be a producer you can be you know anything that you want to be in terms even if it's not with and hip-hop culture so uh, that's my goal in terms of uh, academia and just closing remarks I would really say thank you very very much to everybody that took time out on their Wednesday to come here I'm humble and I'm also grateful uh, for you guys to show up and just uh, participate uh, in this particular lecture and ask questions so thank you very much uh, for coming in everybody drive and be safe well we thank you for coming the lecture was very stimulating